all the decisions in the company need to be made with one thought in mind. Your brand is your most important asset, but the brand resides in the mind of your customer. And so every decision you make, whether it's a pricing decision or a product decision or a service decision, a logistics decision, whatever decision you make, you have to make that, that decision with the thought of what does this do to our brand in the customer's mind. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, everyone. I am so excited to share today's episode with you with a industry veteran, an industry expert, and a lover, honestly, of all things retail. Jim Inglis, he has a long and winding journey with the retail industry, largely with the Home Depot. And he chronicled his experiences and his lessons in the book, Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. I know at Retail Touchpoints, we've been talking a lot about the future of the store, the role that associates play, and what retail executives need to do to create a culture that their employees love and how that ultimately impacts the customer experience. Jim has seen and experienced a lot over his tenure, not just at the Home Depot, but in retail overall. Um, So we got into some of those lessons, his experiences, and what he thinks retailers in all categories can apply from the Home Depot specifically. Listen in, I really hope you enjoy this one because this, this was a lot of fun for me. Jim, great to meet you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you. I look forward to having a chat with you. Yeah, and we have a lot to uh, get into today, but first, let's start at the top. You've been in the retail industry, specifically in home improvement and DIY, for decades, about 60 years at this point. Incredible. But I feel like anytime there is a long and expansive career such as this, there's an origin story, right? So I'd love to get into that. What got you into the retail world initially, and what has inspired you to stick with it for so long? Well, I uh, grew up in uh, the south side of L.A., went to Compton High School, and when I got out of high school, I needed a job. So I got started working in a, a small home center in Whittier, California. And while I was there, I met my wife, who was a cashier, and we decided, you know, I, I needed to start going to college. I started to attend college, and it took me 10 years to get my BA and then later my MBA. And during that time, I worked my way up in the company to where by the time I graduated from the university, I was a general merchandise manager of the store. So by then, I'd spent 10 years in the retail business. And if you do something long enough, you get good at it. And if you get good at it, you usually like it. And so I found that I really like this industry. I like working in retail. I like being able to make things happen and then see the results uh, very quickly. And I've always felt that if you have a talent, it's probably God-given and that you should continue to use it as long as God gives you the ability to do so. So it's been a great 60 years of working with retailers all around the world. There's a point where your vocation can become your, your avocation, and that's what's happened with me. 
I love that. And I love that backstory with how you met your wife, too. But I mean, through the course of your career, like like I noted earlier, you tend to focus in this home improvement slash DIY niche. Is it because you just have such strong roots there? And to your point earlier, like when you do something for long enough, you get really good at it and it becomes your passion and it just kind of became a snowball? Or is there anything in particular about this category that really strikes you and resonates with you individually? It's probably... Uh... Everything you said, plus the fact that it's just a great business to be in. You know, there are 123 million homes in the United States, and every year they get older, and every year they need more maintenance. So the great thing about the home improvement business is that whether you're in a recession, whether you're in a great time of prosperity, it really doesn't matter. It's still a great business. And in addition to that, every year there's a million more homes put into the housing stock. So it's a market that's not only viable, but it's continually growing. And I think you get a, a good feeling knowing that you're working in an industry where if you can give the customer the right product and the right price, the right service, you help improve their standard of living. You increase the standard of living of the people by helping them have a better lifestyle in their home. So it's a great business. I love to be in it. Yeah, that, that cycle, so to speak, is something that really resonates with me. I've been in my home with my husband almost five years, and we were lucky enough to go into a, a new home. But still, you know, every year there's always something to be done, things we want to change, things we want to do. And I know a lot of people over the past 18 months or so with the pandemic, they were spending more time at home and they're was a lot of thought, time, and love put into these home spaces. So like you said, I mean, it's always an ongoing need, but I'm, I'm sure in, in certain points of circumstances and events that demand, you know, sometimes accelerates. The COVID situation has created the most incredible comparable store sales in the home improvement industry, probably in the history of home improvement. The amount of business that's now being done in home centers around the world is way above expectations because of exactly what you said. People are focused on their home more now than they ever have been. Yes, it's truly been fascinating to see how that market has evolved. And obviously, uh, the Home Depot has been a big receiver of that excess demand and new business opportunity. And you spent 13 years at the Home Depot, which is kind of the star or focal point of your book, Breakthrough Retailing. And, and we'll get kind of get into the the tactical takeaways and some of the components of the book in a little bit, but let, let's get into your career because I think that's important context. Can you share like your roles and how you kind of progressed through the company? Because you held several different roles. Is that right? Yeah. Well, when I started with Home Depot, which was in 1983, it was really a startup company. We had four stores in Atlanta and four stores in Miami. So it was truly a startup business. In addition, Home Depot was at that time, would be considered as a disruptor today, like Amazon's a disruptor today. Home Depot was the disruptor then, changing how products were being distributed in the country. And so we, at that point, we were wearing multiple hats. And essentially, I was responsible for about half of the merchandising departments. In 1985, our, our stores were basically, as I said, in the East Coast and the Southeast, but in 1985, we decided to open stores in the West Coast. So I moved back to California and spent the next five years opening stores all up and down the West Coast. In 1990, 
we opened our first stores in the Northeast. And now we had three divisions and it became necessary to coordinate. So I moved back to Atlanta as executive vice president of merchandising. And also during that period, I went on to the uh, corporate board of directors and then did that for about five years. And then ultimately got very involved in the strategic planning of what are we going to do for next steps. Very interesting. So I want to talk about merchandising specifically now that I have some added context. So definitely aligned with the growth of the Home Depot business, going into different areas, different behaviors, different preferences. I mean, what were some of the big aha moments for you in that in those merchandising roles specifically? Because I know a lot of brands and retailers right now, they're thinking about how do we create the best possible experience for our customers? And that goes down to the product level, right? Like how do we ensure that our assortment mix, our merchandising mix really aligns with the, not just the broader trends and developments for our category, but like how does it drill down into specific markets, right? So, I mean, do you have any any takeaways there from your time in merchandising and how that kind of helps bolster your understanding of the art and science of retailing and, and what dictates success? Sure. Well, if you're in retail, you know that you're going to spend a lot of time and thinking and emotion and arguments over pricing. And uh, I remember when I joined Home Depot, I came from a traditional retailer and traditional home centers at that time when Home Depot started, there were 32 traditional home centers across the United States. Over the next 20 years, as Home Depot went into each of those markets, they essentially eliminated those 32 stores. And so I came from one of those type of stores. And I remember after I had been with this company for about two months, I went to my boss, who was a guy named Pat Farah, one of the founders. I said, Pat, I don't belong here because these numbers are crazy. We can't, we can't sell the products for these prices. They're, we're going to lose money. And Pat said, Jim, just answer me one question. How much money are we going to make if the customer's standing in someone else's store? And that was an aha moment where I said, you know what? I realized that gross margin percentage is not what drives a growing profitable retail business, but gross profit dollars drive that business and gross profit dollars are created by sales. So you've got to create the best value to create those sales. I guess another aha moment might be when I left Depot. I started working with home centers all around the world. And all of these home centers, whether they're in Europe or South America or Japan, are building big boxes because Home Depot built big boxes. And so then they thought, well, then we have to put as much merchandise in them as we can. And I found that most of these stores had very poor return on investment because their goal was to fill the store with as much merchandise instead of trying to make the store easy to stock, easy to sell, and easy for the customer to buy. And, and so the lesson I got from that was that less is more. And you've really got to focus on what does the customer really need? What do they really want? And how do we make it as easy as possible to, to be a solution provider for them? And I suppose the, the third aha moment was when I finally realized that as an omni-channel retailer, e-commerce is a very costly function. And uh, while it's absolutely critical to our business, the whole premise that e-commerce is more efficient than a, than a retail brick and mortar store is simply not in fact the case. And that we can really bring the best values to our customers with a combination story and an omni-channel retailer 
that gives the customer the service they need with the technology, with the digital world, but also can offer incredible values in our physical stores. Excellent. Definitely some good takeaways there. So it's pretty clear to me how you naturally transition from merchandising to a more strategic type role. But digging into what that day-to-day looked like, your responsibilities, how you measured success. I mean, you you said you made this shift kind of in the middle of, of a pretty big growth trajectory for the Home Depot. Is that right? So like, how did that translate to your work and your goals? Yeah. Well, when we started the stores in 1980, we began to develop some, some data and we were able to do some projections as to how many stores could we put in the United States and you know, what was our long-term growth potential? And we realized that at the year 2000, which was 20 years down the road, every store we opened after that, we would uh, cannibalize existing stores. And so it became important for us to evaluate and test new formats within the United States to see if we could get growth and ROI from those new concepts. And also to evaluate, well, what's happening in the rest of the world? What is evolving in retail in the rest of the world? Who are the competitors in the world? And in fact, are there opportunities outside of the United States? So really it was looking down the road far enough to say, at what point do we start cannibalizing? And how does our strategic plan have to change when we reach that point? Truly fascinating. And I I think it's a very nice transition to the book, your goals, the story you wanted to tell. And and thank you for sharing all of that background and context. And it was a bit of a build to get into the meat of our conversation today. But I think that context is so important because you had such a in-depth history with the brand and, and you saw and experienced so much. But let's get into the goals. I mean, what did you want to share about this experience and, and your lessons with the retail community, the world? I mean, what story did you really want to revisit and get to the heart of with this new book? Even when I was with Home Depot, people would come from all over the world to see our stores. And they would always say, well, what's the secret? What's the secret sauce? What's the magic elixir? Why why are you growing so fast? Why are you doing so much business per store? And they would be looking at the pricing. They would be looking at the size of the store. They'd be looking at the merchandise mix. And of course, all of those are important issues. But what really made Home Depot successful was its unique culture. And that's why my book, my book is called Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. So the whole focus of the book is to explain, well, what was that magic sauce? And essentially that magic sauce was the culture of the company. And we always said that if you were to, our, our, if you've been in a Home Depot store, you know the color is orange, the aprons are orange. And uh, we always said, well, if you were to cut us, we would bleed orange because we are so connected to the culture of Home Depot. And it was a culture that was one of decentralization, delegation, empowerment, and ownership. When you're operating 2,000 stores uh, across the continent, it's important that you have people that take ownership for satisfying their customers. So the real secret of of the company was, in fact, the culture of the company. And so that's the focus of the book. Excellent. And the book is essentially 
broken in half, right? Like the first half is about the Home Depot culture, and the second half is more around 10 key principles of high productivity retailing. Is that right? I mean, I would love to learn more about the rationale for breaking it down the way you did and how it kind of best reflected your objectives for the book, because it seems like because so many people were asking you, well, how did you do this? You know, what's the secret sauce? What's the magic elixir? I mean, breaking it down into those key takeaways seems pretty valuable, I could imagine. Well, that's right. The book is, in fact, two books. The first half of the book is, in fact, the history of Home Depot. Uh, the second half of the book are 10 principles that you could learn from observing the Home Depot that, that if you implement, would allow you to to work towards a, a high productivity retail model. In fact, I received a call from a Japanese company that wants to print our book in Japanese. And they said that the book was too thick because when you translate to Japanese, it takes twice as much space. So I said, well, just break it into two books, you know, because it is two books. And when I dealt with, after I left Depot, I worked with home centers in South America and Europe, Japan, China, Australia. And in every case, we went through a process. The first process was to study Home Depot because that's the company they want to emulate. But then beyond that, we had to talk about, okay, well, what are the principles that will drive this business and allow you to have be a high productivity retailer? And so my book is arranged exactly like the process I would go through with, with any of our, my clients, which is, first of all, to really thoroughly explain the Home Depot and then to say, now here are the principles that we need to master and we need to buy into if we're going to emulate their success. Right. Well, that's great. And it's noted on the book site, you know, as I was doing my research, that this book chronicles the founding growth, stagnation, and rebirth of the Home Depot, which really caught my eye, right? Like, it's so easy when we tell these stories to focus on just the good stuff, right? But I think the stagnation piece, and we'll get into recovery in a second, because who who doesn't love a good recovery story? But stagnation is interesting, because I feel like an ongoing challenge or discussion in the industry is, how do we break free from the status quo, right? Like, it could be good enough, we could just be getting by, but like, how do we get people to go to the next level? What were some of the key learnings from this specific stage? What do you think the Home Depot is kind of stuck in and how can retailers kind of learn from this experience or, you know, these points of stagnation? It's true that in the retail business, there's constant change. And so you have to be able to adapt to that change and you need to be on the front curve of that change. And if you have the right culture, that's a prerequisite for implementing that change. At Home Depot, we had 2000 stores, as I mentioned, and you've got to have at that point, people who, who understand the mission of the company and the mission of the company is customer service, they need to be empowered to satisfy that customer, to implement the mission. And so by definition, the company had to be decentralized. What happened in 2000, the year 2000, which was 20 years after the company was started, was the original founders left the company and a gentleman named Bob Nardelli uh, was hired from the outside and he had no retail experience, and he came from the General Electric Company. Well, the General Electric Company made primarily businesses making jet engines for airplanes, and it's a very different culture. It's a very centralized culture with very high quality control in their plants, 
and no room for experimentation or failure. Well, in the retail business, you have to be constantly experimenting. You have to be willing to try new ideas and you're going to have some failures. You're going to have some wins and you're going to have some failures. But the culture of General Electric was that you can never fail. And so the result was that Nardelli came into a highly centralized, a highly decentralized company and found that he abhorred the organization and made an attempt to literally turn it upside down. And of course, that created an incredible amount of problems at the employee level and ultimately, of course, impacted the customer experience. Got it. So then how did they go from stagnation to rebirth? What were some of the most notable changes or things implemented to kind of go to that next level? Basically, what happened was if you live by Wall Street, you die by Wall Street. And the culture of Home Depot was always that the mission was customer satisfaction. So the company had a focus that would you, you would call customer-centric. The GE culture said that the most important thing was to satisfy Wall Street. And so earnings per share had to increase every quarter, even if it meant raising prices, even if it meant getting rid of good people, even if it meant stopping the uh, repair and remodel of the stores, the maintenance of the stores. And so you went from a customer-centric culture to a, a investor-centric culture. And what happened was during that seven-year period that Nardelli was there was because those changes impacted the customer and because the customer began to look elsewhere for their home improvement products, the, the sales stagnated. And for that seven-year period, the stock price did not increase. And Nardelli was, the, was literally the highest paid retail a CEO in the country, and the investors themselves begin to ask the questions of, if you have the highest paid executive in the industry, why are we not getting a, a return on our investment? Because we're not seeing any movement in the Home Depot stock. And so basically that discussion was held with Nardelli, and, and the question was either we need to change some things or, or you, you need to leave. And he had an, an incredible package, a severance package, and he elected to leave. And so the company was then managed by a guy named Frank Blake. And Frank was in the company. And Frank was an incredible person. And he had a talent that he would listen. You know, most people, when they listen, are listening. They're not really listening. They're trying to think of what their reply is going to be. But Frank had the ability to really listen and to really take an empathetic position toward the uh, customers and toward the employees. And they began to talk about, well, what made Home Depot great? What was that cult, that bleeding orange culture? What was the uh, secret elixir? What was the secret sauce? And he be, began an effort to refocus the company. And at that time, the company had gotten into many different businesses under Nardelli. And he began to refocus the company on that big box, refocus it on the orange store, refocus it on the customers in that store, and really turn the company back right side up again or upside down again with a, a decentralized culture where the customer was at the top, the store was at the top, and the, the CEO was at the bottom. And that sent the signal that 
we're now going to be customer centric again. We now are going to implement that bleeding orange culture. And the end result was that since that time, you can look at the, uh, at the data in the industry, you'll see that Home Depot continues, has continued now for the last, what, 15, 20 years to gain market share and to operate at the highest profitability and highest ROI of any uh, comparable companies in their industry. So I would say that it was really fortunate that the company had a person like Frank Blake who would listen to the employees, listen to the customers, and make the changes necessary to reinstate that customer-centric culture. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting because we've been hearing the phrase customer-centric for a very long time, but I know we all know there's a difference between saying you are and actually doing the work, right? Actually flipping that model, like you said, to really have the customer be first, to lead with empathy and humility. And I know it's become more of a focal point over the past 18 months with the pandemic, but definitely foresee that being a long-term priority and focus for a lot of businesses, largely because the demand is there, right? That's the expectation for the customer. That's the expectation for employees. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues across the board. But I mean, there's also the tactical stuff too, right? I mean, obviously that customer-centric model is huge at the business level, but then your book covers the tactical components, right? Like pricing, supply chain, productivity. So can you give us a teaser of some of the, the key items that have allowed the Home Depot to kind of maintain that momentum and continue to be that go-to and, and be that that big orange box that everyone loves? Well, it's so much looking at the business from it with an empathetic attitude towards your customer. Really, it's not just knowing the market or having data about the market, but really knowing the customer. And you know the customer by having a relationship with the customer, by you're walking in their shoes by spending time in your stores, by talking to your frontline uh, salespeople and, and really listening like Frank Blake did to find out what can we do to delight our customers. And all the decisions in the company need to be made with one thought in mind. Your brand is your most important asset, but the brand resides in the mind of your customer. And so every decision you make, whether it's a pricing decision or a product decision or a service decision, a logistics decision, whatever decision you make, you have to make that, that decision with the thought of what does this do to our brand in the customer's mind? Because at the end of the day, that's all that really matters. So we know that we're in a changing world and we have to make changes but the first step is to really know your customer. Having said that, then you need to make changes with speed to market. And, and that was, I think that's one of the things that Depot has done well, is make that change that's necessary, whether it was the change of including digital marketing and e-commerce into your brick and mortar model, whether it was reacting to the COVID situation, you, know, you see that you, you have to make these rapid changes. And that's where it's so important to be digitally competent because with digital confidence, you can do things with speed quickly, and you can do them with accuracy. So one of the real advantages that Depot has had going through this whole transition of the digital world, the COVID situation, is that they have invested in the technology that really allows them to be at the front of the curve and to continue that leadership position in their industry. 
Yeah, some great points. And I, I really liked how you brought everything back to the customer, right? Like all of those tactical decisions, whether it be commerce, supply chain, marketing, it all has to somehow letter back to what your customer wants and how it will reflect what they see and feel essentially about the brand. So I think I kind of know where you're going <laughs> to go with this one, but it's always interesting for me to kind of translate a specific success story in this case being the Home Depot, two key takeaways, key lessons for the rest of the community, right? Because there are so many different categories, so many different types of brands. Everyone kind of has their own go-to market strategy, their own key differentiators. But I always feel like there are there are always some fundamental lessons or, or things that everyone can apply in relation to these successes. So what would that be for the Home Depot in this case? If we were to distill it down for everyone listening right now. Well, I'll speak really from my own viewpoint at this point, and that is I, I deal with a lot of companies, Home Depot and, and other companies as well. And as you just mentioned, everything is so critical to be focused on the customer and to be customer-centric. And I think one of the biggest problems in business today is that all the different functional departments in the companies tend to have their own KPIs or key performance indicators, which are designed to get productivity in their individual departments, but in many cases have no thought about customer satisfaction, no thought about how do we coordinate our efforts to make the shopping experience better. And in fact, ends up in many cases with the internal strife between departments because the KPIs are in conflict with each other. And so it's so critical to understand that there's only one KPI that matters, and that's the customer's opinion. The only KPI that matters is the customer satisfaction, and all the other KPIs need to be driven off of that. And I think the biggest mistakes most companies make today is, is they end up with KPIs that are not focused on the customer, but selfishly focused on the internal functions of the company, and as a result, are often in conflict with the idea of being customer-centric. So that would be my, my little sermon for the day. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. A quick, quick follow-up question for you before I let you go, Jim. Culture is a, is a big piece of the puzzle. It's a big, big focal point for your book. And that includes the culture of the employees, right? And, and I've been hearing so much lately about how employees need to be your new influencers. They're the ones who are living and breathing this every day. They're the ones who are speaking with customers. They're the ones who essentially make the magic happen, right? So do you have any closing recommendations at that level? So how to create that culture that employees love and how it ultimately trickles down to the customer? Because I feel like sometimes we get so lost in the day-to-day and actually getting things done. Sure. Well, the, as I mentioned, the focus of my book is how a bleeding orange culture can change everything. And basically, you follow this through that you start with servant leadership that sets values and then demonstrates those values with their behavior. And that creates a culture. And the culture instills a commitment to mission-driven goals and objectives, which should be customer service, customer satisfaction, delighting the customer. Those mission goals and objectives then create extraordinary performance by ordinary people. And that, in effect, is the definition of productivity, getting benefits 
from your employees, giving more to the customer than they expected, delighting the customer and exceeding their expectations. And so I would say that it all starts with the leadership having a very clear focus of what that ultimate goal is, and then literally walking the talk and celebrating the success when customers are satisfied, to turning those into stories and then that tell those stories and retell those stories until they become part of the fabric of the company. Love that. Great way to close out, I think, as so many brands and retailers are thinking about their culture and you know how to not just acquire but retain the, the right people to bring their business to the next level. So Jim, thank you again so much for taking the time. It was fascinating to hear your story, your experiences, and most of all, more about the book. Thank you again so much for taking the time. My pleasure. It was nice talking to you, Alicia. And uh, to all of you, thank you for joining us for this conversation. Again, Jim's book is Breakthrough Retailing, How a Bleeding Orange Culture Can Change Everything. Hopefully this uh, gave you that last bit of inspiration you need to check out the book. And if you have any follow-up questions for Jim or any feedback on this episode, we would love to hear from you on social media at our touchpoints on Twitter and at Retail Touchpoints on LinkedIn. Or if you're so inclined, drop us a review and comment on your preferred podcast player. We are on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, frankly, anywhere else. And subscribe. You'll get updates when new conversations like this one are available. Thanks again, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.